Father, we want to just uh, yield ourselves to you right now, just consciously and deliberately. Lord, I yield myself to you. I ask you to cleanse me from everything that is in me or about me that can hinder what you want to speak through me. And so, Lord, would you just make me a clean vessel, fill me with your spirit. Would you anoint each of our hearts now to receive the word of God and to be changed because we were here. Lord, I pray that none of us can miss what your highest purposes are for us during this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we started a series that we've called or titled Devoted. Basically a series on each one of us as we begin this new year, developing a personal devotional life. A personal devotional life, what do we mean by that is each of us learning to walk with Jesus each day, to commune with him, to connect with him, to have an intimate relationship with him, to walk with him, to talk with him. You know, to know how to listen to his voice, to have that kind of connection that we talked about some. And I asked you guys uh, last week to begin to focus on John 15, abiding in him. So we're really focusing on a series of all of us really kind of getting in a pattern of doing that, that hopefully will become a habit that none of us will recover from. So last week we began by talking about the worship aspect of the devotional life. I really tried to answer two questions last week. Number one, why we should worship, and number two, how we should worship, and we entitled that message, Worship the Jesus Way. Well, this morning, we want to talk about prayer in our devotional life, our devotional prayer. I want to answer two questions. Guess what they are? Number one, why we should pray, and number two, how we should pray. And I've entitled this message, Pray the Jesus Way. So first of all, I want us to try to answer the question the best we can is why we should pray. Why every one of us, if we just had an answer to that question, would really be committed to a life of prayer. First place I'd like to look is out of Revelation chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'll also put these verses up on the screen. But let me give you a little background to Revelation chapter 8, because this is an amazing passage. And all we're going to do is just touch on one point of it. What's going on here in the book of Revelation is there is a scroll that has seven seals keeping it closed. And each seal is broken so the scroll can eventually be opened. And each seal as it's, is broken is an, an event that happens in history. And then once the scroll is opened up, a scroll that tells the story of human sin and violence and God's coming judgment on history and so on. After that, something remarkable happens. And I want us to notice what happens. Revelation 8, verse 1. Let's look. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him that he might add it, listen to this, to the prayers of all the saints. Upon the golden altar, which was before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayer, prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Now listen to this. The angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and then he threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. 
So here's what I want you to just notice from this passage. I want you to notice something the writer's talking about. So usually we think of events on earth being interrupted because of actions that have been taken in heaven. But here in this scene we just read, it's actually the other way around. All of heaven is coming to a standstill. I mean, the endless songs and praises of the heavenly host have stopped. Why? So that the prayers of the saints, saints like you and me, our prayers, could rise, every one of them, before God. And these prayers of all the saints are heard, and they're heard and they matter, and then they, these prayers interrupt heaven, and then what happens next happens as a result of people's prayers when they're thrown down to the earth. Here's the point I'm trying to make, and it's simply this. History does not belong to who we think history belongs to. History does not belong to the human, humanly powerful or the wealthy or the rulers or the armies or the corporation or the media. History belongs to those who pray. You know, I really believe that when we see the Lord, the Bible says when we see the Lord, we will know as we're known. Which is, by the way, why you won't have any why questions when you get to heaven. Because you will know as you're known. As soon as you see him, as soon as you see Christ, you will know as you're known. You're going to know, you're going to have all the answers to all your why questions immediately. That's why I think some of the first words that will come out of our mouth will be, of course. Because now we understand so much of why things happen the way they happen. But I think something else is going to happen. I think we're going, to rec- we're going to realize that, wow, almost everything that happened throughout history on the earth happened as a result of somebody praying it in. Why? Because history belongs to those who pray. I want to look at another passage that makes this point. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. It's one of these passages where I think a lot of Christians read right over and just miss this amazing point. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Listen to this next verse. And raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So right now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. What is he sitting on? He's sitting on a throne. What do you do from a throne? You rule. So how is it that we have a say from the throne of Jesus Christ about what happens on the earth right now? What we have a say is, is that in our prayer life, we are actually ruling with Christ and determining what happens on the earth in partnership with him through our prayers. That is happening right now. History belongs to those who pray. History is not primarily being determined by kings and presidents and the rich and famous. It's not. History is being determined by those who pray. So right now, here's the reality. You are seated with Christ right now 
for the purpose of ruling with him. You have a say right now about what happens on the earth as you rule with Christ through your prayer life. See, it has always been God's plan for us to rule with him. Genesis chapter 1, read it. In the beginning, he made man and woman in his image. And what does he tell them to do? He says, rule over all, basically over all the earth. And, and partnership with him, rule. And then, of course, we sinned and botched it up right off the beginning. But then there's this promise that in the thousand-year reign of Christ, we're going to rule with Christ for a thousand years. And then there's another promise that, that when the new heavens and new earth comes, we're going to rule with Christ forever. So here, it's God's original plan, it's God's eternal plan, and right now, as the body of Christ, even right now, and I think it's probably some internship happening here as well, right now we're ruling with Christ, seated with him. How? Through our prayers, we're determining what happens on the earth. See, I think this is so important that we get this, because if we get this, if we really get this truth, that history belongs to those who pray, we understand our high position that we are history makers in our position. If that captures your heart, then you'll, you'll take prayer so much more seriously. All of us will. History belongs to those who pray. But understand this, our ruling in our praying will be done in a war zone. John Eldridge put it well in his book entitled Waking the Dead. He writes this, This is not Eden. You probably figured that out. This is not Mayberry. This is not Seinfeld's world. This is not Survivor. The world in which we live is a combat zone, a violent clash of kingdoms, a bitter struggle unto the death. I'm sorry if I'm the one to break the news to you. You were born into a world at war, and you will live all your days in the midst of a great battle involving all the forces of heaven and hell played out right here on the earth. So my question to you is, will you fight in that war? Will you take your rightful place and rule with Christ and, and take prayer seriously and be a history maker in your prayer life? See, the truth is the devil, he knows the power that is available to us through prayer. He knows. So he wants to keep us from praying. The devil is not the least bit afraid of a prayerless church. So if he can just keep the church from praying, he's not a bit threatened about us taking the hills that he now controls. So what does he do? How does he keep us from praying? Let me mention some of his strategies. Some of these are obvious, but I just want to mention them to you. Five strategies that he uses to keep us from praying. Strategy number one, ignorance. He works to keep Christians from knowing who they are in Christ, from knowing our spiritual authority in Christ, for knowing our lofty position as a history maker in our prayer life, if he can keep us in ignorance of those truths, then we're not much of a threat to him. So satanic strategy number one is simply ignorance. Satanic strategy number two, unbelief. He convinces so many Christians that nothing is going to happen when you pray anyway, except you're praying. And so, so many Christians function like this. There's something they have to do. What do they do? They function like, okay, I got something I need to do. So I start phone calling, organizing, planning, emailing. Oh, oh yeah, I probably ought to pray too. 
It's almost like an afterthought. Why? Because we don't believe it does anything. If we believe we really did something, we would do it. So unbelief keeps so many people from praying. And I, I talk to people sometimes that will say, well, I just, I'm just too busy to come to the house of prayer anytime. I'm too busy to pray. And when I hear that, my first thought is, then you don't understand prayer. If you're too busy to pray, you don't understand prayer. Martin Luther, the great reformer, would say, I have so much to do on this day, I must spend the first two hours in prayer. When people miss prayer meetings, sometimes I'll have a staff member miss our staff prayer meeting. I'll say, how come you were in a prayer meeting? I'll say, well, I was so busy. And I'll say, my first thought is then you don't understand prayer. See, if we really believe that we were seated with Christ in this high lofty position of forging out history on the earth, we take prayer more seriously. Our third satanic strategy to keep us from praying is the love of ease. And in all honesty, most of us, we just love ease. We don't want to be inconvenienced. But, you know, I have to interject here. For, I just have to tell you, for most of you, it's not your fault. It's not entirely your fault, at least. Because many of us are the products of the systems with which we came out of. What I mean by that is this. Some of you had spiritual leaders in the past who did not want to persist in prayer themselves. So in giving themselves a way out, they gave you a way out. What I mean by that is this. It's much easier to develop a theology to fit our lifestyle than it is to bend our lifestyle to fit the scriptures. Here's a theology I'm talking about that is a false theology that is, taught, that is lived out and taught by so many. And that is this. So many leaders, they pray ever so briefly with no intensity, no passion, they don't get an answer right away, and then they just piously conclude it's just not God's will. And then they teach that to other people as a prayer life. So here's the truth. The truth is, if our prayer is according to the Word of God, and we're praying, being led by the Spirit of God, then we don't have to give in to the false theology. We can persist and give God time to answer, time to get the answer to us, time to prepare us for the answer, but persist until we get the answer. But that will be inconvenient, I'll tell you. That will be work. That will be hard. But that is what changes history. I tell, that's why I tell people, if, if you consider Grace Community Church your home church, we're asking every one of you to have a personal prayer life, first of all, and secondly, to be willing to be inconvenienced for one hour a week to come up to our house of prayer and pray for the needs of the church and the needs of our missionaries and so forth for one hour a week. And people, the reason they don't do it, why? Because it's inconvenient. It doesn't fit their schedule. And that's why I say, I'm asking you to be willing to be inconvenienced because we have so much is writing on this. What's writing on it? History. History's writing on it. Satanic strategy number four. Distraction. Many people, maybe you're not ignorant about prayer. Maybe you believe it's important, but you're just distracted. See, here's the truth. The truth is the devil, he'll, he'll be glad to help you do anything but pray. Just do anything. He'll help you do it if you just get you away from praying. Because he knows that a prayerless church, a prayerless church activities, prayerless church meetings do not threaten his kingdom. But when we pray, he trembles. 
Last one, satanic strategy number five, disappointment. That's when the answers didn't come the way you wanted them to come and you're disappointed. And some of you today are stuck there. You're stuck in your disappointment. You don't pray like you used to because you got disappointed. And I want to ask you a question. So you're disappointed. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You got disappointed. Your answer did not come the way you thought it. You wanted it to come. And you don't understand it. So what? Join the club. I got a lot of those. What are you going to do? Are you going to take your position on that throne and, and have a say in what happens in history? Or are you just going to mope? I mean, we, we just got to snap out of our disappointment and say, look, I got a higher purpose right now. I am in a war. And I got to take my position. And I got to pray. So the answer to the why question, why pray is simply this, because all history is riding on it. That's why. And you have a say in it. Take your place. And pray. Let's answer the second question and take a little longer. And this is how should I pray? So Jesus' disciples were watching him pray. And they so they so saw the, the power of that, there was you know the the you know effect of that, that they came and asked him. At least one of them got up the courage to come and ask him, Lord, would, would you teach us to pray? It's interesting because they didn't ask him to teach them to do anything else. They didn't say, would you teach us to preach? But they did ask them, would you teach us to pray? And most of us realize that what Jesus taught them on that day, most of us know that as the Lord's Prayer. That's one title. Some of us grew up in a church where it was called the Our Father. Many of us have been taught this as a prayer when we were little children. Perhaps you even went to a church where you just said it in unison every Sunday some of you might have grew up in that kind of church. I did. I grew up in a church that said it every Sunday, and everyone was, most of the people around me, I think, for the most part, were mindless when they were saying it. They weren't really thinking much about the words that they were saying. You ever, you ever have moments of mindlessness yourself? Just kind of just saying stuff, you're not even thinking about what you're saying? I think most of us probably would have to admit that we do that from time to time, at least time to time. In fact, I want to give you a test, see if you do that. Ready? Now, here's a test. I'm going to ask you a question, and you've got to answer it right away. Okay? Right away, answer the question real quick. Here it is, first question. The tree that grows from an acorn is called a oak. The dark vapor that rises from fire is called smoke. The sound a frog makes is called a croak. The white of an egg is called the... The white of an egg is called the white of an egg. <laughs> See, that's mindlessness. And it affects all of us from time to time. Well, let's all stand together. I want us to pray these words that Jesus uh, taught the disciples. But do not be mindless. We're going to pray them together. I want us to think about the words that we're saying. Pray along with me. This is out of Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This is the New American Standard Version, but let's pray it all together. It's on the screen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, you can be seated, but go ahead and tell the person next to you that they pray real good. Go ahead. All right. Now, remember that what the disciples asked Jesus to do was to teach them to pray. They did not ask Jesus to teach them a prayer. See, many have misunderstood the Lord's words here to be some prayer. And there's nothing wrong with praying this as a prayer and meaning it. But actually, that was not the intention of Jesus. He was giving guidelines on how to pray because that's what they asked for. They said, teach us how to pray, not teach us another prayer. They were already new prayers. So he's teaching them how to pray. So I want to walk through this as a prayer guideline that we can take into our prayer closet, into the house of prayer, and we can use this as a guideline to pray. So let's walk through it. How does this guideline work? It starts off, our Father. By the way, you know, there is no record of anyone ever coming to God in prayer and addressing him as Father until Jesus did it. And he uses the Aramaic word, Abba. I mean, it's a very tender word, Abba, Abba, Father. Again, there's no record of anybody coming to God in prayer and calling him Father until Jesus did. And then Jesus turns around and invites us to call him that. That is way cool. But also, think about him as as, as God as Father for a moment, because Jesus came to reveal to us what God the Father's like, Remember? So if you ever wonder what the Father's like, he's like Jesus. Because Jesus came to show us what he's like. The Father is like Jesus. So we're speaking to this, our Father who's like Jesus. A Father who has no limit to the goodness of his intentions to you. And no limit to the power to fulfill those intentions for you. Our Father who art in heaven. You know, pastor and author uh, John Ortberg, he points out that li- literally it says our Father, the one in the heavens. And he makes the point that the terminology, the word heavens in the New Testament is used in a variety of ways. It's used even for the atmosphere. It's used of the sky. It's used for the, I mean, act, the actual air and the stuff around us that we breathe right around us. It's that close even. And I believe that Jesus really intends us to understand that that statement in that way. I don't think Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray our Father who is in the heavens from a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) I don't think that's his intention. I think he has more in mind what John Ortberg was talking about, starting off with my Father, my Father who is all around me. My father's closer to me than the air I breathe. My father who's right here, right now. I mean, let that sink in when you start to pray. So many people pray to God like he's not even in the room. He's not only in the room, he's right here. He's right there. Then he says, 
then pray, hallowed be thy name. It's not a word we use very much anymore. It means to attach value to something. Give it, give it the honor it is due to recognize its worth. I read a story uh, about attaching value. I don't know if this actually happened or not. But this guy came into this antique store. And as he comes into the antique store, the guy that came in there happened to be an expert in antiques himself. And he comes in and he notices a cat drinking milk out of a saucer. But he notices that saucer is actually a vase from the Ming Dynasty in China and is priceless. So he's thinking, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. I can get this vase because this guy obviously doesn't know what he's got there. So if I can just get this vase from him, I mean, I'll make a fortune. So he kind of saunters up to the owner of the antique store and says, hey, that's quite a cat you got there. He says, ah, oh, it's just a cat. He said, no, no, I'd love to have that cat. He said, ah, oh, it's just a cat. He says, I'll give you $100 for that cat. The guy's like, $100? Yeah, I'll give you $100 for the cat. He says, okay. Gives him $100. He says, oh, and by the way, I'll take that saucer, too. I need something to feed him in anyways. I'll give you 10 bucks for the saucer. And the guy says, I could never sell that saucer. You see, I, that is a vase from the Ming Dynasty in China. <laughs> That's worth a, a, a lot of money. He said, but it's the strangest thing. Ever since I started putting milk in that saucer, I've sold 17 cats. Well, Jesus tells us that we, when we pray, we should recognize God's worth. That's what it means. Now, basically, he's, he's saying when we start praying to the, our God, our Father, who's right here, start off by worshiping him. Start off by recognizing his worth, his majesty, his splendor, his beauty. Just start there. Hallowed be your name. Then he says, then go to the next stage in how to pray. Pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So the next thing we pray is we're praying for the kingdom to come. What are we praying for? We're praying that the rule of God would come to bear right now on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that his rule would come to bear in my own life, my own heart, in my home, in my marriage, with my family, in my workplace, with my co-workers, you know, in my health, I'm praying, let your will be done on earth right now. Here, let your rule come on earth as it is in heaven. So that, that right there, that one line you could spend an hour on. Let me explain what I mean. Now, we know that everyone in, who's in heaven has had their sins forgiven, right? But people on earth don't have their sins forgiven. A lot of them don't know Jesus yet. So I'm praying that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior Lord so they could be forgiven. I'm praying God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because everyone in heaven is forgiven. I'm praying that they would come to know Christ so they could be forgiven on earth. What am I doing? I'm praying evangelistic prayers. But then I go on. We also, I start to pray for people to be healed. Why? Because there's nobody sick in heaven. And again, I'm praying, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why I pray for healing because I'm praying as Jesus taught us how to pray. Also, I pray for people to be set free from every demonic bondage, every addiction. Why? Because there's nobody addicted of anything other than the Lord himself in heaven, and there's nobody in any, any demonic bondage in heaven, so let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we cast out demons. We pray for people to be set free from every bondage. Also, we know that the knowledge of Christ fills heaven, but the knowledge of Christ is not filling the earth right now, right? So I'm praying, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm praying for lost people and unreached people groups 
who had never heard the name of Jesus to come to know him. So now I'm praying missionary prayers, see? I don't stop there. Pray for the hungry and the naked and the dispossessed and the oppressed and the needy. Why? Because there's no hungry in heaven. There's no naked people in heaven. There's no refugees in heaven. There's no lonely people in heaven. So again, we're praying, God, let your will be done on earth as is in heaven. Don't stop there. Pray for the grieving to be comforted, the depressed to be filled with joy, the anxious to be filled with peace. Why? Because we're praying again, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's nobody sad in heaven, nobody depressed in heaven, no one anxious in heaven. We're praying, Lord, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see how just praying that one line, you, could, you can camp down there for a long time? Because you're praying his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you go on to the next line, give us this day our daily bread. Now we're beginning to pray for God's provision for our needs. These are prayers of petition. So we're asking the Lord for our daily bread. We're asking him for provision. We're asking him for finances. We're asking him for jobs and so forth. We're not supposed to be worried about having our needs met, but you are told to ask for them. Ask for them to be met. Remember, the Bible says that many do not have because they do not ask. Jesus is saying, ask, ask. Then he goes on to the next line, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts means forgive us, O God, for the mountain of moral debt we have of sin. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. But then we don't stop there. Because not only have we been perpetrators of sin, but we've also, everyone in this room has been, and everyone live streaming has been victims of sin. So we also not only ask him to forgive us our sins, we then forgive those who sinned against us. See, every one of us in this room have some debtors. We have people that have sinned against us. We have debtors. Somebody who you thought you could trust who hurt you. Someone who was jealous of you and said bad things about you and twisted the truth about you. Somebody in business who deliberately cheated you, took advantage of you financially. Someone who broke your heart and didn't even care they broke your heart. Somebody in your family who wounded you. A parent who belittled you or neglected you, withheld affection from you. Or a spouse who left you, betrayed you. Or a friend who out of nowhere attacked you. We've all been victims of sin. We all have debtors. And this brings us to the spiritual spiritual crossroads really of immense proportion here in this prayer. And that is this. What are you going to do with the people who have sinned against you? What are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with your debtors? Are you going to forgive them or not, really? I want every one of us to be in this room to be very clear what Jesus thinks about this. I want us to look at that one single word, a little bitty word, the word as. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I think that, that little word is one of the most sobering and I think terrifying words in the Bible. I don't think any word in the English language carries a greater possibility of terror than this little word in this verse right here, as. Because Jesus, notice what Jesus is doing. He's making a correlation between the way you and I treat our debtors and the way God Almighty is going to treat us. So as we pray, we ask for forgiveness. 
but we don't stop. In our times of prayer, when we get to that line and how to pray, that guideline, we make sure in our prayer time that if there's anyone who sinned against us, we are quick to forgive them. Quick to bless those who curse you. Quick to pray for those who persecute you. Quick to love your enemies. Forgive them. Let them go. Release them. Bless them. God, you do whatever you want with them, but I'm releasing them. I'm not holding it against them anymore. Many of you know that my, my mother's been battling uh, stage four cancer now for over two years, and God has been so generous to her. She's had so, so, so little pain, and she's got cancer all over her body, and she continues to function, and doctors are scratching their heads. And, but her sister, her older sister, uh, recently died, and they went through a period of decades without speaking to each other. And a, th a third sister actually led the oldest sister to the Lord before she died. And then they called each other. My mother and her sister, who hadn't spoken for decades, called each other and crying on the phone forgave each other. And I thought, that's so beautiful. But it sure would have been awesome if it would have been done a lot sooner, too. Why do we wait so long? Why do we hold on to the unforgiveness? It's kind of a twisted kind of way we think we're hurting them by holding on to it. Well, actually, unforgiveness is like sucking on a poison pill waiting for the other person to die when all it's doing is killing you. I wonder this. I wonder, over the last 2,000 years, how many marriages might have changed and how many friendships or churches might have been healed if when we got to that part of the Lord's Prayer, we stopped and let the Holy Spirit work a little bit. Just give Him some time to work. And I think the Holy Spirit has some work to do in this room today if we'd let him. All honesty, some of you have a phone call you need to make today. Or you have a letter you need to write or a person you need to visit. Someone you need to forgive. Because here's the truth. If you don't forgive them, then God won't forgive you. That's what it says. And you can do all the homiletical gymnastics you want to try to make it say something else. But you can't because that's what it says. There's a correlation between the two. And it's, and it's there to sober us and realize that we have to be forgiving. And then the next phrase, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So now we move into prayers of protection and deliverance. We live in this combat zone, this dang dangerous place that we live in. We have an enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So we pray, Lord, lead me away from tempting situations. Lord, you know what I can handle. Would you keep me out of situations I don't do well in? Lead me away from that and give me wisdom to know what to say yes to and no to, but lead me away from tempting situations and deliver me from evil, from the evil one. Lord, you know every demonic scheme against me. You know every demon who has an assignment, what his assignment is against me. Lord, would you deliver me from those schemes? Would you give me spiritual insight on what I should do about it? That's what we're praying. We're praying for prayers of protection and deliverance. I want to tell you a story about a good friend of mine. His name is James Ryle. He's in heaven now. Passed on a couple of years ago. Most of you never heard his name, and I'm going to tell you why. Actually, he, James was a he was just a, a great guy, a, f a great pastor, funny guy. He had Tracy nine stitches many times, many times. But back in the '90s, when the Promise Keepers Men's Movement began, Coach 
McCartney, football coach from Colorado, his pastor's name was James Ryle. And so James Ryle was part of the Promise Keepers movement from the very beginning. But James told me that the Lord had told him that he was keeping him in hiding and no one would know his name so he could stay humble. And I thought, that's interesting. The Lord said that. No one would know your name. He said, yeah, the Lord just told me he's, he's got me in hiding and no one was going to know my name. And I thought that was pretty funny. And but t- because here this guy was, I, you know, I thought was going to end up being prominent. Well, sure enough, we, we had, the, the, I think the peak of Promise Keepers was when we went to Washington, D.C. in the mall and had about 2 million men in the mall. In fact, there's never been that many people in the Washington mall. They couldn't get all the men in. The whole wall was packed there. We took 100 guys from our church. We had, there was men up and down the arteries trying to get into the mall that couldn't even get into the mall. There's so many guys there coming just to pray, humble themselves, ask God for forgiveness for ourselves and for our country. But I want to tell you, we got there. We arrived at 3 in the morning. And when we got there, people were already coming into the mall. They were, they were just coming down the streets. You know, people were getting off of buses and stuff. The buses couldn't get there until people were just walking through the neighborhoods, some of these very dangerous neighborhoods, but guys just walking to the mall. We got there at 3 in the morning. At 5 o'clock in the morning, when it started, finally started to break daylight, I want you to see what was happening over the Washington Mall. Show that slide. Tens of thousands of men coming to repent and seek God's face in the first light, and that's a photo that we took. Does that look like a heart to you? What a coincidence. See, I think God is speaking all the time. We miss it so much. He speaks through everything. And I just think his heart was, that was his heart for what was happening there. It mattered to God what was happening but what's interesting, and here's where the rest of the story is, and that is that there was going to be a gospel presentation that day as part of the meeting, part of the day-long meeting, because it was also not just two million people there. There was, there was tens of thousands watching it on different uh, television networks. And so there was a gospel presentation, and there was a couple of famous guys were asked if they would be there to share the gospel, and for one reason or another, they couldn't. So Coach McCartney asked his pastor, James Ryle, to share the gospel to these two million men, along with those watching on TV. So I thought, when that happened, I thought, well, now there's no way. You must be out of hiding now. They're going to know your name. Well, James gets up there and preaches the gospel and does a fantastic job. He's clear. It's simple. It's penetrating and powerful. Well, after it's all over, I thought, well, I guess, you know, I guess they're going to know your name now. Well, remember, his name's James Ryle, but the next day in the paper, it had his picture in the paper, and it said, it said, it said, and Pastor James Pyle is, is speaking at the Promise Keepers gathering in Washington Mall. And I just had to laugh out loud. And I, told, and I, was, I, I was talking to him about it. And he said, yeah, I'm going to Pyle, Pyle, Pyle. But the thing about it is, I mean, God is just, we, we need to pray that way. God, whatever, if I, whatever you got to do to keep me, Lord, from being tempted and falling into sin, Lord, would you lead me that way? And would you deliver me from all the schemes the devil has against me. Pray that way. And then finally, the last line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You know, the truth is, all of us as humans, I think we have a kingdom problem. I mean, if we're really honest, I think for the most part, it's really in our mind, it's about my kingdom and my power and my glory. And there's a book children's book by Dr. Seuss called Yertle the Turtle. Any of y'all ever read that to your kids, Yertle the Turtle? Some of you guys? 
It's a story about a little pond of little turtles who were ruled, or so he thinks, by a king turtle named Yertle. And one day, Yertle the turtle decides that his kingdom needs some extending. It says, he says, I'm king, he said, of all I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. So he began to stack turtles to be his throne. So he lifts his finger and a whole pond of turtles scrambles to obey first dozens and hundreds. They all existed for his sake in his mind, his kingdom, his power, his glory. So now he can see for miles. And he says, I am Yertle the turtle. Oh, marvelous me, for I am the ruler of all that I see. And he thought his throne was as secure as a throne could be. And I suppose in a way it was, but in the end, his throne turned out to be a turtle tower of Babel. It says, and the turtle on the bottom did a plain little thing. He burped. And that burp shook the throne of the king. And today that great yurtle, that marvelous he, is king of the mud. That's all he can see. That's just the truth about us, friends. I mean, some of us are kind of obvious and bold about it. Some of us are a little more subtle and sneaky. But to some degree, we're all a bit of kingdom builders. My agenda, my comfort, my money, my success, my lifestyle, my achievements, my career, my opportunities, my security. Just keep on stacking the throne a little bit higher. But a day is coming. A day when some turtle somewhere is going to burp. You know, maybe in this life, maybe at the end of this life, but all of us are going to learn what kingdom is ultimately in control and who it is, who his, his kingdom it is and power it is and glory it is. And we're going to all discover, the whole world's going to discover that he didn't, he doesn't live and didn't live in Rome. He doesn't live in Washington. He doesn't live on Wall Street. He doesn't live in Hollywood. There's a day coming, the Bible says, where every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Every, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, one day there is a king who's going to move his finger, just one finger, and a whole lot of thrones that seem real secure right now, are all, they're all coming down. They're all coming down. A whole lot of big turtles are going to see a whole lot of mud. How many knees will bow? Every. Every knee. I want you to think about that for a moment. All humanity from Adam and Eve, from all through history to the very last person till he comes, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as the supreme that is his kingdom, it's his power, it's his glory. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about every president that's ever lived for a moment. Start with George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Just work your way through every president who ever lived, every CEO who ever led a company, every movie star who ever graced a magazine cover, you know, Every billionaire who ever made his, you know, fabulous fortune, all of them will be on bended knee and confessing Jesus is Lord. 
I mean, people that we know right now who are sitting on a throne of sorts, some good, maybe some not so good, they're all going to bend their knee. Oprah will be on bended knee confessing Jesus is Lord. Donald Trump and Bill Gates, Tom Brady, LeBron James, Wolf Blitzer to Rush Limbaugh to Kim Jong-un to Vladimir Putin to Benjamin Netanyahu. Just go on and on and on. Every one of them will be on their knees and confessing with their tongue Jesus as Lord. I mean, knees that didn't do much bending on the earth when they walked the earth. Napoleon, be on his knees. Adolf Hitler, be on his knees. Joseph Stalin, he too will bend a knee, confess with his tongue, Jesus is Lord. Caesar Augustus, old Caesar, who sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. He's going to come before the Jesus who entered the world on his watch. Was born to humble parents and a dirty stable in some obscure village in an oppressed country that Caesar never even thought about passing through. Caesar will bow. And Herod, Herod who put out the word that he was looking for this one, this child who would have gladly put a sword through him himself if he could have found him, who killed a lot of babies trying to get to him. Herod will find out one day that death was no match for this man. Herod will bow the knee. Pontius Pilate, who didn't really want to do something wrong, but really didn't want to do something right either, will find out there's a day coming when you can't wash your hands and look the other way. Pontius Pilate will bow his knee. I mean, people think about that. People whose whole life was being bowed to will be the bowers on that day. The person that you live next door to, just think of them for a moment. They'll be bowing their knee. The person who's closest to you at work, they'll bow the knee. The person who sits next to you in class, they'll be bowing the knee. Your mom and dad, and their mom and dad, and their mom and dad, they'll all bow to Christ one day. Now, some knees are probably going to be bowed in duress. Some may be grudgingly, some may be resentfully, stiffly, but every knee is going to bow. Some, of course, in adoration and thanksgiving and thrilled hearts are going to bow because of God's sheer goodness and glory. But one day or another, you know, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. But Jesus is telling us in this prayer, we get to that point where we finish that prayer by saying, we're doing it right now. It's, it's your kingdom. We're already bowing and confessing. It's your power and it's your glory forever and ever. Amen. And by the way, if you're here today or you're watching live stream and you haven't yet bowed your knee to Christ as a Savior and Lord of your life and confessed him to be that, don't wait till it's too late. Don't wait till you've got to be put on your knees because then it's too late. But I want us to close by just taking some time to pray this prayer again, but I just want to do it a little differently. I want to invite everyone to stand if you would. I want to invite you to close your eyes and I want to just lead us through a prayer. And you don't have to repeat it, but just in your heart, pray along with me if you would. Let's pray. Our Father, Abba, Abba, Father, who art in heaven, our Father who is in this room right now, who's close as the air that we breathe, who's right close to us right now. 
He's with us. He's near us. Couldn't be any nearer than you are to us. Our Father, Abba, Father, hallowed be your name. Lord, we just want to honor you, worship you. We give you our affection, our devotion right now, our love. Hallowed be your name. Blessed be your name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Lord, would you bring your rule to bear in each of these homes represented? Would you bring your rule to bear in all of our workplaces? Lord, would you bring your rule to bear, Lord, in our classrooms? Lord, would you bring your rule to bear, Lord, in our health? Those who are sick among us, Lord, heal them today. Those who are in bondage today, heal them today. Deliver them today. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. You know the needs here, Lord, that we're asking. We're asking, Lord, for the finances. We're asking for the jobs. We're asking for your provision. Would you give us this day what we need? Lord, would you forgive us our debts, our many sins? We thank you for the shed blood of Christ. Lord, and we confess our sins to you and to one another that we might walk in that forgiveness and healing that's available. But also, Lord, we... Would you bring you into mind that we need to forgive? And we forgive our debtors today. Anyone bring you into mind that we need to call today to go by and see, to release? Lord, we, we will do it. And lead us not in temptation. Lord, you know, you know those in our group right now that are, that are toying with temptation, are giving into it. Lord, would you lead every one of us away from these tempting situations? Would you set people free from some of the deception they've begun to enter into in temptation? And Lord, would you deliver us from evil? You know every demonic assignment against every person, against every family, against every marriage. Lord, you deliver us from these demonic assignments in the name of Jesus. Mightily, we pray you to do this, O Lord. For yours is the kingdom. Lord, right now, we gladly, gladly bow our heads in devotion and reverence, saying, as yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. And Everybody says, amen. 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 Okay, now wait. I got to give you your week assignment. Now this week, again, I'm asking, if, for those of you that they haven't, they haven't done something like this before, I'm saying give 20 minutes a day to this. Those of you, this is no problem. You can give a, go a lot longer, but 20 minutes before you go to work or school, typically I'll be the best for most of your schedules. 20 minutes and 10 minutes this week for seven days, spend 10 minutes using the Lord's Prayer as your prayer guide. 10 minutes and 10 minutes I want you to spend in John chapter 10. Again, with a notebook or a piece of paper, writing down what the Lord is saying to you. Last week it was John 15. If you didn't do it, ask the Lord for forgiveness. And now, go and sin no more. Okay, John 10 this week. All right, that's the assignment. Now, you going to do it? Okay, everyone who's not going to do it, raise your hand. All right, all right, good, we're good. All right, God bless you guys. You're dismissed. Have a great week.